Well, this morning is Palm Sunday. As I mentioned, it's the first day of Holy Week, the final week of Jesus' earthly life. Uh, we look back at his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And in a few days, it's going to be Good Friday. We will have a Good Friday service here at 6.30 where we remember Jesus' crucifixion. And then, of course, Easter Sunday is when we remember the resurrection. Uh, we read the Matthew passage earlier in the service. And I want to read the John passage, John's account of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So let's read John. Well, I'll read it. John 12, 12 through 19. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So Jesus has been uh, healing and teaching, going around the Jerusalem region for about three years at this point. As alluded to here, he has recently raised a man from the dead. As you can imagine, word has spread. People are flocking to see, is this the Messiah, the King? Not just a good teacher, but is this the long-promised King of Israel who's going to come and restore Israel to its former glory? In case you're not aware of what's going on in Israel at this time, uh, they are under Roman occupation. Okay, so Rome, they're part of the Roman Empire right now. They are not a free society. And so they believe that this Messiah is going to come, this king is going to come who's been promised. And he is going to overthrow Roman oppression. And he is going to restore Israel to its former glory. And as they've heard all the rumors about Jesus, they're wondering, is this the Messiah? Is this the king? There's a reference here to Zechariah 9.9, a prophecy about this king where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So here Jesus is acting out this prophecy, coming in on this donkey. They're throwing their palm branches, and they're shouting this, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. So hopes are high, aren't they? Hopes are pretty high at this point that this Jesus is the Messiah, the King of Israel. In fact, even after he rose from the dead, you may remember that the disciples said this to him. When they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So even after Jesus had died and rose from the dead, the apostles are still asking him the question. Okay, so now are you going to overthrow Rome? Obviously, if you can come back from the dead... That's a pretty good warrior king. So they're hoping that he is the one who's going to overthrow Rome. But the same crowd that was cheering wildly for Jesus, a few short days later, is going to be singing a completely different tune. After Jesus is arrested by the religious leaders, he's brought before Pilate, the Roman governor. And this is what happens in Matthew 27, 11 to 26. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. 
And then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called Christ, Pilate asked. And they all answered him, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, Let his blood be on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Incredible, isn't it? So you have this crowd singing these hosannas, thinking that Jesus might be this Messiah king who, is, king who has come to overthrow Rome, to restore Israel to its former glory. Only a, shoo, a few short days later, they are crying out, crucify him. They're calling for his blood. What happened? What happened to this crowd that would cause him to go from cheering wildly for Jesus to wanting him dead. And what does this say about us? So I want to begin just by looking at what happened here and then, and then to talk about what does this mean for us today. Two reasons I can see why this happened. First of all, they had expectations on Jesus that he did not fulfill. They expected a military hero. They expected someone who was going to come and rally people to overthrow Rome. They didn't expect that someone was going to die. They didn't expect that he was coming for a greater enemy than Rome. He was coming for sin, for death, for the devil himself. And their misguided expectations caused them to miss what Jesus was up to. They had in their mind, this is what God's up to, and they completely missed what God was up to because of their expectations. This Jesus, this king was coming, but he was coming in weakness, on a donkey, not on a horse, a conquering horse. He's entering on Passover, surrounded by thousands of lambs, symbolism, anyone, Entering, just as these lambs are going to be slain, he's coming to be slain for the sins of the world. He's coming not to overthrow Rome, but to overthrow sin, death, and the devil. They had expectations on God. They had expectations on Jesus. And when he did not fulfill them, they were angry. They were disillusioned. But I don't think that was enough to want them to make them want to kill him, but that's a good start. But the second thing, the second reason I think the crowd changed so drastically is that he confronted their sin. He confronted their pride. He confronted their idolatry. If you read it, what happens in, in, in between his entry and the crucifixion, he enters the temple. He clears out the temple of the money changers. He says, how dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? Instead of confronting the Romans, he confronts the Jewish religious leaders. He tells them that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering God's kingdom before they are because of their pride, their sin. He says, 
you religious leaders have killed all of God's prophets and now you're about to kill God's son. He calls them out repeatedly for their pride, for their hypocrisy, for their violence. And they respond by wanting him dead, by claiming that he's guilty of blasphemy, of making himself out to be God, to be, to be the son of God. They stir up the crowd to have him crucified. So Jesus shows up on the scene. They're all expecting him to overthrow Rome. And instead, he's come for a different mission. They miss what he's there for. And instead of confronting Rome, he turns and he confronts them with their sin, with their idolatry, with their pride. And in response, they want him dead. Now, you might think, with the benefit of 2,000 years hindsight, what's wrong with these people? What's wrong with these people that they're putting to death this great man, this Jesus? But I want you to listen closely this morning. I want you to consider that if you were in that crowd, you probably would have done the same exact thing. That you're not somehow, you know, more holy than that crowd was. That you, of course, would have been, you know, more aware of who this was. And I would not have done that to Jesus. I want you to be aware that there's something inside of you that is very similar to what's inside of this crowd. That if Jesus were there, that you would have been doing the same exact thing. Let me explain three things I want to say about that. First is this. Why are we just like the crowd? In our natural state, in our sinful nature, we are enemies of God. Does that feel strong to you to say that? We're hostile to God. Think of Romans 8, 6 through 8. puts it this way. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. So Paul there is, is, is making a contrast between the, ma- the mind controlled by the sinful nature, the mind controlled by the Spirit. He says the one who is in his natural state, her natural state, controlled by the sinful nature, cannot submit to God, is hostile to God. It says in Romans 5, 6 through 10, you see, at just the right time when we, will st- we were still powerless, powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. For a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more... Having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Look at the things he says about you in this passage, the words I highlight there. Powerless, ungodly, sinners, enemies. If you were there in the crowd, I do not think you would have been somehow more aware, more holy than the crowd. I think you would have been right there along with them, chanting and crying out for Jesus to be killed. In our sinful nature, in our natural state, we are enemies of God. We are hostile to him. We do not want him as God. We cannot submit to him. This is how R.C. Sproul put it in his book, The Holiness of God. He said, God is our mortal enemy. He represents the highest possible threat to our sinful desires. We despise his very existence and would do anything in our power to rid the universe of his holy presence. If God were exposed to expose his life to our hands, he would not be safe for a second. We would not ignore him. We would destroy him. 
This charge may seem extravagant and irresponsible until we examine once more the record of what happened when God did appear in Christ. Christ was not simply killed. He was murdered by malicious people. The crowds howled for his blood. It was not enough merely to do away with him, but it had to be done with the accompaniment of scorn and humiliation. Again, I, I, my, my assumption is that some of you are struggling with this, to, that you don't see yourself this way. You don't understand this whole, wait, I'm an enemy of God. I don't think of myself in that way. So let me just push this a little further. What, what, what do I mean? Why are we enemies of God in our natural state? I would say for this first reason, we want a God who serves us and meets our expectations. Remember, the crowd had expectations. This is what we expect the Messiah to be like. This is what we expect God to be like. And when he did not fulfill those expectations, they were upset, they were angry, they were disillusioned. And eventually they wanted him dead. And we have our own expectations on God. We have our own expectations of what God should be like and how we should act. We are self-centered creatures. And we want a God that is made in our image, who thinks like we think, who approves what we approve of, whose understanding of our weaknesses says, hey, it's no big deal. Do you believe that? That we are self-centered people who want a God made in our own image, who approves of what we approve of, who thinks the way we think. If we hear a preacher talk about God disapproving of something that we approve of or hating something that we like, if we read about a God, a God doing something in the Bible and we're like, I just don't like that, well, we think the fault must be with God, right? It's not with us. We know what's good. We know what's right. We are enlightened. If God disagrees with me, sees things different than I do, the fault must be with God. Something's wrong with him. He's just not as enlightened as I am. We're self-centered. We want a God made in our image. We want a God who thinks like we think, approves what we approve of. In many ways, we want the God of the health and wealth gospel, right? The God who just is our magic genie. You know, if we could figure out the right things to say and pray, then he will bless us and give us that promotion and give us that, you know, all the positive affirmations our heart desires. And he will give us the health we want and the wealth we want and all of that. There's a reason that is such a fast-growing segment of Christianity. Because that is what our hearts want, a health and wealth God who just gives us what our heart asks for. You know? Going through the Bible, just looking for all those affirmations, all the things that God says that build us up, build up our self-esteem. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm God's masterpiece. All those things, ignoring all the other things he says about how I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my moment my mother conceived me. All the other things that kind of say, maybe you're not as amazing a person as you think you are, but you're a sinner in need of a savior. Again, we are self-centered. We want a God who serves us and meets our expectations. But God does not exist to serve you. The God of the universe does not exist to serve you. And our natural state, our sinful nature hates that. Hates that God. Again, if, you, if the God you believe in agrees with you on everything, it's probably an idol. It's probably a God of your own creation. It's probably not the biblical God. You understand? If your God completely approves of the Republican or Democratic platform, you know, probably a God of your own making. And I've met people who have gods like that, right? 
God is not, he doesn't think the way you do. His thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not your ways. He doesn't agree with everything that you agree with and approve of everything you approve of. And if he says something that you disagree with and disapprove of, maybe, just maybe, we need to be humble and consider that the fault might be with us, not with him. Maybe we're just not as enlightened as we think we are. Maybe we don't see things as perfectly as we think we do. We want a God who serves us. We want to be our own master. We want to be our own Lord. We don't want to bend our knee to anyone. We don't want to be accountable to anyone. In our sinful nature, we hate God. We don't want a God. We want to be our own gods. Thank you very much. And how we're just like the crowd. We don't want a God who confronts our sin. We don't want a God who calls out our idolatry and our pride. That's what makes us really want to kill God. The crowd during Holy Week, they cheered Jesus because they thought he was coming on their side to overthrow Rome. And when instead he turned his sights on them and called them out for their sin and their hypocrisy and their idolatry, they killed him. And I want you to, again, humbly consider this that you in your sinful nature don't want a God who confronts your sin, confronts your idolatry. The Bible talks about idolatry, and yes, there's like, you know, those shrines and those statues. There's that idolatry, but there's also the idolatry that comes when we put anything above God. If there's anything other than God we look to and say, this is what will give me my joy, my comfort, my satisfaction. This is what will save me. It can be money. It can be status. It can be our reputation. It could be romantic love. It could be our children. It could be comfort. It could be all kinds of things that we say, this is what I really want in my life. And if God comes and puts his finger on that and says, we need to deal with that. Most of us in our natural state say, to hell with you, God, literally. I I don't want to lose this. I'm choosing this over you. I would rather you die and I get to keep my idol. I get to keep my sin. We don't want a God who confronts our sin. I mean, think about Jesus. Again, if you have a Jesus who just kind of loves you and approves of everything you do, that's an idol. That's a a Jesus of your own creation. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Because when you read the Bible, you find that Jesus was a master at putting his finger on the one thing that people needed to that one idol that people needed to kind of lay down and set aside. You think of the rich young ruler as an example, right? As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. See, that's Jesus, right? He loved him. And he also loved him so much to be able to tell him, you are putting your hope in money, and money is not going to save you. Money is not going to be there for you the way you think it is. So you want to have eternal life, get rid of that idol. 
Sell all you have, give it to the poor, then come follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven. You'll have so much more wealth than you could ever imagine, so much more wealth than this world can offer you. But he couldn't do it, right? He couldn't do it. Think of the Pharisees and their pride. He kept coming at them and saying, you think you're right with God, but I'm telling you that these tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you because they see their need for God and you don't. You think that you can stand on your own spiritual resume before God and you can't. And as he put his finger on their pride, they couldn't repent. They couldn't lay down their idol because that's what they had built up. That's where they found their reputation was in how spiritual they were. And so, again, they wanted him dead. Think of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. He says, woman, I don't condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Not just love, but love plus go and leave your life of sin. Lay down that. Think of the woman at the well in Samaria where he says, you know, go call your husband and come back. You're right, you've had four husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Whatever was going on there, he had a way of putting his finger on that one thing that people needed to deal with. And some of you may already have those things in your head right now and you're, you know, going like this to God right now, like, la, 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 like, I don't want to hear it, God, because I know what it is and I don't want to hear it. And if you were here speaking to me, Jesus, today, and you said to me, you need to lay this down. Whatever it is, you need to lay down that stubborn independence. You need to lay down that desire for comfort. You need to put me above your children. You need to put me above your spouse. Whatever it may be, money, status, reputation. If he were actually here and speaking those words to you, you know what your reaction would be. You would have a hard time trusting him. You would have a hard time saying, yes, Lord, it's all yours. More likely, your sinful nature would say, no, get out of here, Jesus. I don't want to hear it. We don't trust God, do we? Jesus said this, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You could substitute many things for money in there. Because you can't serve two masters. If something else is your idol, something else is what you're bowing down to, something else that you're putting above God, you can't serve both. When they come in conflict, you're going to have to choose one. And if you put that thing above God, you know what's going to happen. You're going to say, again, Jesus, you go to the cross. I'm holding on to my idol. James 4.4, James says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Here's that word again. An enemy of God. So again, look at the crowd there. Jesus comes in and they are cheering him because they think Jesus is on their side. He's there to rescue them. And then when Jesus instead confronts them, they want him dead. And many of us are the same way. We cheer God as long as he's on our side, as long as he's coming through for us, as long as he's given us what, what we want, as long as he's serving us. We cheer him. Praise God. You know, he gave me that job. He gave me this. Everything I've prayed for, he's given to me. But what happens when, instead, he doesn't give you what you want. He confronts you with what you need to get rid of. Just like the crowd, we can so quickly turn on Jesus. When you think about today's culture, you know, one of the prevailing narratives of the day is kind of the my story, my truth way of looking at life, right? Listen, my story, my experience is my truth, and no one can 
tell me otherwise. No one can question it because it's my truth, my story. What happens when your story rubs up against the story, when your truth is confronted by the truth, when your truth is confronted by the truth? When there's a God who says, just because you think this is your truth does not make it truth. Again, like the crowd, many of us are quick to nail Jesus to the cross. Get your hands off my idol, God. So again, in our natural state, I am saying, in our sinful nature, we are enemies of God. And even when you become a Christian, part of that sinful nature still remains. Right? He's put his spirit in you, but part of that sinful nature still remains. And part of you still resists Jesus. Part of you still resists having a God, a Lord, a master. Part of you still wants him dead, does not want accountability. And when God comes to you and says, lay down that idol, trust me in this, we still, that sinful nature wants him dead. So again, why does this matter? Why am I bringing this up this morning? Two things I want to say about that. First of all, this magnifies what Jesus did for us. Recognizing that we are enemies of God in our natural state magnifies what Jesus did for us. You know, I used to think, my way of thinking when I first became a Christian was I believed that God was lucky to have me on his team. That was how I first saw things, right? As if, you know, God was a captain of some team and he chose me and he was lucky to have me on his team, right? Because I'm a pretty good guy and he's lucky to have me on his team. That's how, when I first became a Christian, I saw salvation, Eventually, I began to realize that, wow, he saved me in spite of my sin, in spite of my unworthiness, he still chose me. But this week, I feel like this is new to me, you know? I don't feel like I've ever really thought of it this way, that I wasn't just neutral, you know? I was an enemy of God. I was part of that crowd that wanted him dead. I was opposed to him. I was hostile to him. He died for me when I was his enemy. He forgave me when I was opposed to him, when I was hostile to him. Again, last week we looked at how we're like those disciples who fell asleep on Jesus, you know, who, couldn't, who aren't there for him in the hour of his greatest need. But again, we're worse than that. We're like the crowd, the fickle crowd, cheering whenever he's on our side, whenever he's doing what we want, and then crying out for him to be crucified, nailing him to the cross, whenever he disagrees, whenever he confronts us. Again, go back to Romans 5, 6 through 10. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him, through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Have you ever seen yourself that way? Have you ever understood that you were an enemy of God, hostile to him? Again, many of us think, I'm not a bad person. I don't, you know, it's not like I was going around as a terrorist trying to blow up churches. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about how we, in our sinful nature, love our sin and love our idols. And if Jesus comes to say, you know, serve me as Lord, we say, no, thank you. You go to the cross. I'm holding on to my sin. But Jesus died for us, and he gave us a new heart. 
Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's the promise of what he did for us. Not just that he forgave our sins, but he replaced that heart of stone that is an enemy of God and gave us a heart of flesh that responds to him, put his spirit in us. We are a new creation. And so now we've got that battle going on within us. R.C. Sproul said it this way in The Holiness of God, the only kind of God we can love by our sinful nature is an unholy God, an idol made by our own hands. Unless we are born of the Spirit of God, unless God sheds his holy love in our hearts, unless he stoops in his grace to change our hearts, we will not love him. To love a holy God requires grace, grace strong enough to pierce our hardened hearts and awaken our moribund souls. It's his love and his kindness that leads us to repentance. Do you not? Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Remember, I've been sharing this every week, right? That revival comes from an increased awareness of the holiness of God and the depth of our sin. And seeing ourselves as enemies of God is, is about as low as you get, right? That we were the ones responsible for nailing him there. If we had been in that crowd, we would have done the exact same thing. That's the depth of our sin, that we are responsible for the death of God, the death of the Son of God. And an increase of his holiness, that his love for us is so great that he would love us even when we were his enemies. The last thing I want to leave you with is this then. It magnifies what Jesus did for us, and it reminds us that we have to daily kill our sinful nature, that we've got this battle going on within us now. We've got this new heart. We've got his Holy Spirit inside of us. But we've also got that sinful nature that needs to be destroyed because it wants to kill us and it still wants to kill God. This is how Paul put it in Romans 7. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it. It is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good but it cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it. It is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. See what he's saying there? If you could catch that, you know, it sounded like Dr. Seuss, I know, with the, I do what I do not want to do. But he's saying, even though we've been made new, even though we're a new creation and God has put his heart, a new heart, a new spirit in us that desires him, at the same point we have the sinful nature inside of us that's warring against it and this battle going on that's right there with us every time we want to serve God. We need to kill it. We need to put that to death. And so in Galatians 5, Paul tells us about that. He says, I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, Hatred, discord, jealousy, 
fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Again, I encourage you, first of all, to recognize that in our sinful nature we're enemies of God. Let that magnify what Jesus did for you in dying for you. Not just that you were a good person, he chose to be on his team, but you were an enemy and he gave his life for you when you were still his enemy. That's how deep his love is for you. And then secondly, recognize that sinful nature still exists within you and wars against you and wants to destroy you and wants to destroy God. Put it to death. Continue to live by the Spirit. Put to death all that is not of him. This Palm Sunday shows us we're no better than the crowd, but Christ died for us when we were his enemies. Let's respond in worship. Lord, help us to be transformed by your love this morning. That we might have a deeper awareness of the depth of our sin and a deeper awareness of your holiness so that we might see how amazing your love is for us. You died for us when we were your enemies. There is nothing we could do now that we're your children that could ever cause you to reject us, to condemn us. We belong to you. We thank you. And we pray, God, that you would help us to crucify the sinful nature in us, to put to death anything that is not of you, and to walk by your spirit, trusting you, because you gave us your son, and you, along with him, graciously give us everything that we need. We can trust you because you love us. Help us to trust you more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.